today on Against the Grain. What is anarchism? Many now know that it's not about breaking windows or planting bombs, but what are anarchism's core tenets and what has anarchism looked like in practice? I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Dana Ward, political studies professor and founder of Anarchy Archives, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Is anarchism dangerous? Dana Ward believes it is, not because it promotes chaos and mayhem, which it does not, but because it frightens privileged elites and authoritarian structures. Anarchism, Ward argues, opposes all forms of hierarchy, domination, and exploitation. It offers, he contends, a viable alternative form of politics grounded in people and groups acting on the basis of cooperation, solidarity, mutual aid, and direct participatory democracy. Dana Ward is Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at Pitzer College and founder of Anarchy Archives, an online research center on the history and theory of anarchism. When Dana and I connected recently, he began with these comments about the historical emergence of modern anarchism. Anarchism is a term that uh, arose out of a social movement. Of course, there were uh, earlier iterations of the term which uh, were used by Greeks and so forth. But uh, in terms of anarchism as an ideology, it begins with William Godwin in the end of the 18th century uh, wasn't called anarchism at the time, and uh, people don't call themselves anarchists uh, for many decades later. And they went by a number of different terms. Uh, the early anarchists were mutualist. Uh, many called themselves libertarians. And it's not until um, after uh, the 1860s and the emergence of the conflict between Marx and Bakunin uh, that you begin to have people uh, seriously calling themselves anarchists. Of course, Proudhon was the first to call himself an anarchist, and that was uh, around the 1840. His movement, however, was mutualist. Uh, But anarchism means two fundamental things. Uh, One is opposition to capitalism, and the other is opposition to the state. And it's those two areas where the philosophy has developed. You know, that's been the stimulus for thinking about anarchism is thinking about capitalism, thinking about the state. So William Godwin, who you mentioned, he was a British writer and thinker born in 1756. He came up with a critique of the state. What did he not like about states? Godwin's a a very interesting person because he was trained as a, his profession was a minister and he was part of the dissenting community in England, um, which was opposed to the uh, state church. And so many of the dissenters uh, argued that their relationship to God was personal and direct, and there should be no intermediaries between them uh, and their God, and that it was a matter of conscience, and no one had a right to interfere with that relationship. Well, the dissenters, uh, of course, developed their own community, their own uh, institutions. They weren't allowed to attend the universities and so forth, so they had their own universities. But they developed a a counterculture, if you will. And um, out of that counterculture came an extreme antagonism towards the state. When Godwin lost his belief in God, he just transferred those arguments about why there should be no intermediaries between an individual and their God, to why there should be no interference with the exercise of uh, freedom uh, by states. It's interesting that the impetus for the anti-state argument was uh, rooted in anti-established church arguments. Um, He was an extremely influential character. A number of important uh, people were drawn into his orbit. Uh, One of the most important, I would argue, is Robert Owen who is you know, regarded as the uh, kind of the beginning of socialism. Uh, Marx 
critiqued him as a utopian socialist, but uh, Owen really got the the uh, socialist movement going. And when he w he had already written his first treatise, but when he was writing his second, third treatises, he was uh, in London uh, having uh, lunch, often dinner as well, with Godwin. Godwin leaning over his shoulder, whispering in his ear as he was writing, and he was very much influenced by Godwin. And Godwin's I uh, ideas kind of faded for a while. Uh, and there's the famous story about uh, Shelley, the poet, who was inspired by Godwin. Indeed, uh, Shelley's poetry is uh, basically Godwin uh, put to verse. And he came uh, and knocked on Godwin's door. Um, I think it was around 1814, 15, something like that. And um, basically said, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I thought you were dead, but I learned you're alive. I've been inspired by you. And he goes on and on. And uh, eventually, of course, Shelley marries Godwin's daughter. That's Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Godwin had a great deal of influence through these other roots, uh, through uh, Owen, through Shelley and the poetry. Uh, but he also had a profound impact on the Chartist movement. And the Chartist uh, actually published a, uh, a version of political justice that they could fit in their pockets. You know, if, if you ever have the opportunity to go to the British Library and see uh, Godwin's uh, first edition of political justice, it's a remarkable book. It's huge, uh, amazing paper to the feel. Uh, the margins are wide. And that's one of the reasons Parliament didn't censor it, because they figured no one could afford to buy it, so it wasn't a threat. Anyway, the Chartist... Uh, produced a version of political justice in one volume, very, very tiny print. You almost need a, a magnifying glass to read it. Um, but that had a profound influence, and that's, uh, that created an impact on the culture that between uh, 1815 or, you know, in 1830s and 40s uh, inspired the workers' movement. And that movement, of course, eventually... Uh, develops and becomes the International Working Men's Association when uh, Chartists and Mutualists and others gather in London to uh, form the, the International. So that's kind of a thumbnail of who he was and what his influence was. And in fact, this International Working Men's Association was the famous forum for a clash between Karl Marx and Mikhail Bakunin, Bakunin being another foundational anarchist, Marx eventually had Bakunin expelled from this association called the First International in 1872. On what matters, I know this is a big question, but maybe you could boil it down to uh, a couple of the essentials. On what matters did Marx and Bakunin disagree? Yeah, for a, a long time, uh, you know, I went to Berkeley in the 60s and I considered my, myself a Marxist and um, uh, during the Cambodian invasion, I was uh, getting up and speaking about some issues and uh, said I was a Marxist, but I had uh, some basic disagreements. Um, one was on the role of the peasants. I didn't, you know, Marx regarded peasants as being um, potatoes in a sack. Nothing uh, united them except their common condition, whereas workers were in a factory and that brought people together where they could exchange ideas and so forth. So Marx thought that peasants uh, could not play a revolutionary role. Uh, Bakunin, who grew up uh, as a privileged member of the aristocracy, often escaped um, Kropotkin did this even more, but uh, Bakunin was very much aware of peasant culture and peasant ideas and realized that peasants could be just as revolutionary as, as workers. So one of the fundamental differences between Marx and Bakunin is, is the role of peasants in revolution. Um, anyway, when I was talking about this, a guy uh, came to me afterwards and said, you know, you're not a Marxist, you're an anarchist. And I said, oh, come on, I don't throw bombs. You know, that was my stereotype. But it stimulated uh, me to go and look a little bit more deeply into anarchism. And uh, another one of the important differences between Marx and uh, Bakunin, and this is probably the most fundamental difference, is that Marx wanted a political revolution. He wanted to change the hands on the levers of power. He wanted to put workers in the place of capitalists, and then workers would rule as a dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, uh, that's a term that I also had problems with. Um, but if you examine 
Marx's work, he only uses that five times. In each case, it involves uh, workers organizing if they were free to organize, which they weren't. Um, since they were a majority, they would win elections and in the idiom of the day, dictate. So for Marx, revolution meant a political revolution. It meant changing those who ruled. Whereas for Bakunin, he didn't want to put new hands on the levers of power. He wanted to destroy the levers of power. He wanted a social revolution rather than a political revolution. He wanted to change the nature of social relationships. So that's the most fundamental difference between Marx and Bakunin. Uh, anarchists would have nothing to do with electoral politics. Uh, they wanted to transform social relations, uh, change the way we relate to each other, and create a horizontal society in which there's no one above, no one below. For Marx, there's always going to be someone above uh, with their hands on the levers of power. His name is Dana Ward. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at Pitzer College. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Your very last comment there suggests that anarchists are not only against the state, are not only opposed to the state and want to eliminate it, but that they are opposed to any kind of authority or hierarchy. Is that correct? That's correct. The term horizontalism is a recent term. It comes out of the uh, Argentine crisis at the turn of this century. But it's a concept that was there at the beginning. It's one of the reasons that uh, anarchists are also opposed to capitalism. Now, Proudhon, of course, uh, is a very important person in the development of anarchism and in the development of Marxism. In the 1840s, uh, Proudhon was the most important uh, radical thinker of the time, and he, uh, many people were attracted to Paris and came, and among them were Bakunin and Marx, who sat at Proudhon's feet. And uh, Marx idolized Proudhon. And indeed, uh, if you take a look at, at Marx's work, the things that are useful in Marx's work, alienation of labor, uh, things like a surplus value, uh, those all derive from Proudhon. All the crap in Marx comes from Hegel. Uh, so the useful critique of capitalism is something that Marx learned from Proudhon. And, the, and what Proudhon argued for was basically workers organizing among themselves, creating cooperatives, creating um, workplace democracies, uh, where there was no boss, but people decided for themselves how they were going to organize production. Uh, so Proudhon, uh, you know, the, the idea of mutualism, um, helping each other, people being equal, uh, that's right there at the beginning of anarchism. So you, you might have heard the phrase, uh, no gods, no masters. And that summarizes a great deal about anarchism, the idea that we are our own masters and that no one can invade upon the right of private conscience. Now, many people look to the state for help, for assistance, for welfare benefits, social supports. So anarchists are okay with these functions, what might be called benign functions of the state being eliminated? Oh, yes, because uh, the, all of those functions can be performed through mutual aid. Mutual aid is one of the most fundamental values, one of the most fundamental concepts, and one of the most fundamental practices in anarchist history and thought. Maybe I should talk a little bit about Kropotkin. Uh, Kropotkin uh, comes after Bakunin. Uh, he was uh, a little bit later. Uh, in the 1870s, he comes to Switzerland and gets inspired by the Jura watchmakers who are anarchists. Uh, and joins the anarchist movement, and he eventually develops a, uh, a new theory of anarchism, uh, anarcho-communism. So Proudhon was a mutualist, Bakunin was a collectivist, and Kropotkin was a communist. And the central core of that idea of mutual aid came about in many ways um, because of his critique of the social Darwinists. The social Darwinists were arguing that our betters are our superior, and they deserve to, to rule. And that survival of the fittest means that those on top are up there because they deserve to be on top. Well, 
Kropotkin critiqued the social Darwinists by actually reading Darwin very closely and realized that what Darwin was really arguing was that it was not competition within a species that drove evolution, but that it was competition between species and that those species that cooperated most were best fit for survival. And so he takes this idea of cooperation and develops it into a concept of mutual aid. And mutual aid is what would provide for all the functions that would normally be thought of as, as areas of state authority. So we see a lot of this today, even in uh, emerging during uh, the last year in the COVID crisis and in the protest of Black Lives Matter. And you see uh, mutual aid organizations developing uh, in a wide variety of places and providing the kind of support um, that states uh, would have been, you know, would normally be thought of as, as providing. So there's no reason why states are best suited uh, to provide for those needs. We're perfectly able of coordinating, cooperating, and organizing for our own mutual aid. What about the notion that state and state institutions are uniquely able to coordinate large-scale projects, global projects, initiatives to, for example, address issues like uh, climate change? Because, you know, the anarchists or anarchism seems to uh, advocate for a kind of a radical decentralization. How could decentralized institutions, if certain institutions are, you know, things that anarchists could actually support, how could decentralized institutions tackle such large-scale problems? Uh, that leads us uh, to the next important concept of anarchism, uh, which actually uh, begins again with Proudhon, and that's the idea of federation. So there's no reason why you can't have a global federation um, as long as the arrow of authority uh, doesn't point from the top down, but rather points from the bottom up. So anarchists have always been involved in organizing federations. So the way anarchists would attack climate change, for example, is that we would uh, create community organizations, neighborhood organizations, maybe even starting at the block. Block associations, neighborhood associations, city associations, um, county associations, uh, you know, wider regional associations. Um, but at each one of those levels, delegates might be sent and the issues would be discussed. But the level that had a wider geographical coverage would not have the authority to impose decisions, but rather a consensus would be developed among those delegates. Those delegates would then go back to the base the base would then say thumbs up or thumbs down, and that's how you would coordinate, and you could do that uh, at a, a global le level through federations. So there's an important distinction between government and the state. There would still be government uh, like a federation in which people get together and decide how to organize their lives, but there wouldn't be coercive authority uh, backed by bullets to enforce those decisions. Uh, those decisions would have to be arrived at uh, through processes of discussion and consensus, and people would have to agree to go forward with any of the programs developed. Uh, so there's, there's no reason why federations couldn't perform exactly the same functions as states. Is coercion ever acceptable to an anarchist? Uh, well, in situations of self-defense, uh, certainly um, resorts to violence uh, would certainly be accepted by many anarchists. Now, there's a very, very strong pacifist strain of anarchism who would resist uh, the use of violence uh, under any circumstances, uh, but there is, uh, you know, an equally uh, lively uh, contingent among anarchists who would resist violently, but only in defense, never uh, initiating violence. So coercion is uh, is only acceptable in an emergency situation to prevent harm to yourself or to others. And this issue of consensus that you brought up, you know, a lot of people might say and have said that 
you know, getting unanimous consent out of a group or anything close to it is incredibly time consuming and cumbersome. And therefore, this kind of anarchist practice, which is, you know, as you are suggesting, is integral to the anarchist worldview, is, is impractical. How do you respond to that? Well, it's impractical if you are involved with very large groups. Of course, the larger the group, uh, the more interests are going to diverge, the more interests diverge, the more conflicts that are going to be, and the less likely you're going to reach consensus. But if you um, divide the units of governance uh, to smaller local levels, it's more likely that people have interests in common. We'll see the world in the same way, and it will be easier to come to a consensus. But yes, that is difficult. And many, uh, some anarchists argue that majority rule should be uh, the rule in some instances. Um, but uh, the ideal is to try, try to provide consensus. But if you go to majority rule, then the minority must have the right to secede, that you can't impose your decision upon the minority. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's difficult um, in practice. Uh, participatory democracy is uh, probably a little bit easier to get things done. Um, but in the end, you can't force a minority to go along with your decision. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Dana Ward joins me. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at Pitzer College. He founded and he maintains Anarchy Archives, an online research center on the history and theory of anarchism. And he's written widely about anarchist theory and practice, including with Paul Messersmith Glavin, an article called Why Anarchism is Dangerous. And you can find that in Agency, which is an anarchist PR project. We've put a link to that article and to information about Dana on our website, againsttothegrain.org. Well, certainly a lot of people are, are really concerned about ecology and environment. What stance does anarchism take toward ecology? Uh, that's a very important question and one that uh, goes way back in, in anarchist history. And the most important person in that regard is Elisee Reclus. He was one of the most important geographers of the second half of the 19th century. Uh, he wrote a massive universal geography, uh, multiple volumes, some of the most beautifully produced books I've ever held in my hand. Uh, but he was an advocate of bioregionalism, um, the idea that society should be organized uh, in harmony with nature. Uh, and it was indeed our obligation to assist nature, um, to improve upon it when, when we can. And his, uh, he, he had a, a number of different projects and so forth, but I, I let, actually let me jump forward a little bit because I think the, the person that's most important in this regard is actually the guy who drew me into the anarchist movement, and that's Murray Bookchin. Uh, Bookchin uh, was uh, very prominent in the 60s and 70s uh, with his critique of capitalism and the way in which it uh, ruins uh, the environment. In fact, when Rachel Carson uh, wrote Silent Spring, Bookchin had actually written a very, very similar book uh, about the same time. It didn't have the same impact. Um, but he was very much concerned with the environment and his works are the best to uh, take a look at it, the role, you know, how anarchists approach ecological issues. So uh, trying to live uh, in harmony with the environment rather than through exploitation. It was kind of a natural application of the anti-hierarchy idea uh, and critique of capitalism, uh, taking those arguments and applying it to nature as well, and that we, we should not be imposing our will upon nature, but we should be living in harmony with nature and helping nature when we can. Let's talk about anarchism in the workplace. Some people might have heard of the word syndicalism and specifically anarcho-syndicalism, which I, I think is sort of anarchism applied to, to the workplace, to workplace ecologies. What do anarchists think about enterprises and uh, businesses and factories that might be different than the way socialists and communists might envision workplaces in the ideal society? 
Okay, syndicalism, uh, you know, I, earlier I mentioned uh, mutualism was the earliest iteration of anarchism. Collectivism was Bakunin. Communism was Kropotkin. Syndicalism emerges later um, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And that, uh, a syndicate is simply the U European name for a union. And the idea of, of syndicalism is that it would be the workplace that would basically govern the society. And the way that would operate is that uh, workers would own and operate the enterprises. This is an idea that goes back, uh, uh, for example, to the IWW. Uh, the IWW in the United States uh, was in many ways a syndicalist organization, it, and it brought in both Marxists and anarchists. Um, but the idea was that if you organized all of the workers, that the way to create fundamental change is to create a general strike. So if everybody, if everybody is organized into one big union and the union goes on strike, the economic system collapses, the workers take over and um, would begin to operate the enterprises. Now, the, the, the first time that workers uh, seized the means of production and began to operate on the basis of worker-owned and operated enterprises is back in the Paris Commune, and that's what makes the Paris Commune so important, is it's the first instance of that. But as time developed, of course, probably the best example is during the Spanish Civil War. Anarchists had organized workers' unions, um, had created a, a very, very wide network, and when the fascists rose in 36, uh, and Orwell was there to see it, he was amazed that in Barcelona, Basically, they didn't skip a beat. Uh, bread was baked, electricity was produced, water flowed through the pipes, and it was because the anarchists had spent decades organizing uh, workers, and when the capitalists fell, they simply stepped in and took over. We see the same thing happening in the recuperated enterprise uh, movement in Argentina uh, in the 2000 crisis. Capitalists were dismantling their factories, selling the equipment. The workers occupied the factories. Uh, put them back into production. Uh, they created 10,000 jobs, well over 100 different enterprises, uh, became worker-owned and operated. And basically, that's how uh, economic relations would be conducted in a anarchist society. The workers would hire managers, but the managers would be responsible to the workers. Uh, if, they, if the managers failed to provide the uh, materials that the workers needed to produce, the managers would be fired and replaced. So you would still have a need for coordination and management, but it's a question of to whom are those managers responsible. A contemporary example of such a, an organization would be Mondragon in Spain. Um, this was not um, specifically anarchist at all. It was in fact started by a Jesuit priest. Uh, after World War One, but that's evolved into over a hundred um, enterprises that are owned and operated by the workers, uh, and this includes, uh, you know, capital-intensive, labor-intensive, agricultural, industrial, financial, educational, uh, all kinds of different enterprises. Uh, but in all of those enterprises, it's the workers who make the decisions, not the managers. His name is Dana Ward. He's an educator, a writer, founder of Anarchy Archives on the web. We'll take a short break and speak more with Dana about anarchist theory and practice and history. Please stay with us. And this is Against of the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Dana Ward is Professor Emeritus at Pitzer College, where he taught political studies for many, many years. And we have posted a link to Anarchy 
Archives, which he founded and maintained. It's an online research center, as well as the article that he and Paul Messersmith-Clavin contributed to the online resource agency. It's called, it's an article called Why Anarchism is Dangerous. So worker-owned and operated enterprises sound certainly very appealing, and uh, certainly worker cooperatives have been springing up and emerging. What about the issue of whether these enterprises can be as uh, productive and, quote, competitive as capitalist enterprises, which, of course, are often lauded by a mainstream economists as, you know, the way to uh, combine productivity and efficiency. Yeah, that's a very important issue. And um, it's a, it's one of the literatures I've been following for 40 years. And I follow a number of other literatures, but few have been as consistent in, in their finding as the literature on worker-owned and operated enterprises. And that is that they are more efficient and more productive than capitalist enterprises. And one of the studies was actually done by the IRS when the uh, plywood industry in the northwest of the United States, after the end of World War II, um, they, the IRS had to decide about how to tax the, the profits because the profits were shared equally among the workers and there were uh, bonuses at the end of the year. And they had to decide whether to uh, tax that as capital gain or as wages. And of course, the rates are different. Uh, and so they had to decide, um, you know, examine uh, how much was produced by the workers and so forth. Anyway, they came to the conclusion um, that, in fact, it's more efficient generally than similar capitalist enterprises. Um, they decided to go with wages rather than capital gains, as, um, by the way. But uh, the, the reason that worker-owned and operated enterprises are more efficient, more uh, profitable, is that you reduce the policing functions that are necessary in a capitalist enterprise. If you're the worker and you own that enterprise, and it's Friday afternoon and it's a beautiful day outside, you're going to show up to work rather than go to the beach because you know that your, your fellow workers are depending upon you and that the rewards for you going to work will be returned to you. And so you, you see, for example, much lower turnover in worker-owned and operated enterprises. And that's what, part of what makes them more efficient because training new workers is one of the biggest costs in capitalist enterprises. And you have new people coming in over and over and over, you're spending more of your time training than producing. So aside from greater longevity is that there are fewer accidents at work. Uh, there are fewer stoppages because uh, some accident has happened because workers know uh, that they're responsible for their working conditions and they're not going to work in uh, dangerous situations uh, that could give rise to having to stop the production. And so uh, for a number of reasons, worker-owned operated enterprises, when you match uh, the type of enterprise in terms of whether it's capital intensive or labor intensive, agricultural or industrial, if you match worker enterprises with capitalist enterprises, worker enterprises always win, not sometimes, always. So certainly the workplace is one of those spaces in which anarchist principles can be realized. How important to anarchism is the creation of, say, non-workplace spaces creation of those spaces by anarchists to practice what they preach, to, to implement, to put into practice what they believe. And one of the things about anarchism is that it has evolved out of practice. And one of the things that syndicalists and people in Argentina uh, realized is that um, there's more to life than work. Uh, and that it's not just the workers who are affected by what a factory or a, an office or a company does, but the surrounding community is affected as well. So, for example, in Argentina, one of the things that happened in the recuperated factory movement was that they created neighborhood councils. And neighborhood representatives are also involved in part of the decision-making process. But there are all sorts of other areas of life that need to be organized besides the factory. And so, for example, education is another area in which anarchists have been um, very much involved uh, almost from the beginning. 
One of the most important figures uh, in that regard is Francisco Ferrer, uh, the Spanish educator who um, basically gets hung uh, by the Spanish authorities uh, for challenging the Catholic Church's monopoly on education. Uh, but in essence, what the modern school movement that he founded emphasizes is what today uh, people are probably familiar with Montessori. Uh, it wasn't in any way affected by Ferrer's ideas, but it's a similar kind of idea where it's the child that leads uh, the direction of the education. Um, it's a child-centered education in, in which the role of the educator is to facilitate the learning uh, let the student take the lead, and then um, the adults or the educator provides the materials and the resources that the student needs to be successful. So education has been one of the areas where anarchists have uh, created institutions uh, outside the educational structure. Emma Goldman and Berkman and a number of the New York radicals were involved with uh, the modern school in Stelton. Uh, in New Jersey. Uh, there have been several examples such as that. So there are a wide variety of areas outside work where similar ideas can be applied to education, to healthcare, and so on. Uh, so it's not, the workplace alone is not enough. You have to create cooperative organizations in every area of human activity. You have said, Dana, that if tomorrow we woke up and we were in an anarchist society, it would be a disaster. Why? Because it, it's important that we have a, uh, a shared set of values. We need to be, have uh, skills. And decision-making and social organization uh, are difficult. They're not easy. You need practice. Uh, I once, uh, for my dissertation, I gave, uh, I did a, a series of, of interviews with the children of working class adults. Uh, these were adult children. Their parents had been interviewed um, by Robert Lane back in the 60s. I interviewed the adult children. And one of the things I noticed is that their concepts of democracy, the children's concepts of democracy, in many ways were much, le much less developed than the parents. The parents were involved in social organizations. They were involved in PTAs, in unions, in neighborhood organizations. The children, when I interviewed them, and again, they're adults, I asked them about the organizations that they were involved in, and there was a remarkable lack of organizational involvement. Few members of unions, uh, few involved in PTAs. Uh, and the, the consequences of that is that they weren't exposed to the procedural face of democracy. And as a consequence, they had a poor grasp of what the principles of democracy are. And so if you asked, I uh, asked one of my subjects, you know, what is democracy? What does it mean to you? And she said, oh, it means you can go into any supermarket you want and buy anything you want. Well, um, you know, that was her daily life. And she recapitulated it as, as democracy. She knew we lived in a democracy, so that must be what it is. So to the extent that we're not involved in, in cooperative decision making, we don't have the skills, don't have the ability to uh, make the compromises and to listen to other people uh, so that we can come to some kind of collective consensus. So in other words, we need a process of socialization that involves the ways in which we are educated as children and the way in which we interact as an adult in a consensual, mutually respectful way. Um, and without that kind of socialization to simply expect that everybody suddenly the day after the revolution are, are able to function appropriately is, uh, is really dreaming. And so we need, for me, uh, for anarchism to reach its goals, we have to take the long view. We have to develop social institutions that provide people with the opportunity uh, to develop skills of self-government. His name is Dana Ward. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at Pitzer College, where he founded and he maintains Anarchy Archives. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against of a Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, I hear what you're saying, Dana, about a lot of preparation and socialization needing to happen, but that doesn't that kind of feed into this notion of anarchists as dreamers? Because it would seem to me under current conditions that, you know, that kind of value setting, that kind of inculcation of 
values of mutuality and reciprocity and horizontality. I mean, you know, we're talking about years, possibly generations before people could be primed to be anarchist and for the society more uh, and more importantly for a society as a whole to be anarchist. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying as well. But if you think back, uh, when I became an anarchist in the 70s, uh, there was no anarchist movement. Of course, there was a radical movement that I was a part of, but it was certainly not consciously anarchist, uh, even though Andy Cornell's book, uh, Unruly Equality, shows how there were threads of anarchism that go back to the classical movement that were perpetuated. But basically, there was no anarchist movement. It's not until the 90s uh, with the organization uh, against the uh, WTO that we, be, we begin to see a resurgence of anarchism. And then, of course, you see Occupy uh, Wall Street come on, which was, uh, of course, uh, stimulated by the anarchist culture uh, jamming group. And David Graeber, of course, had a great impact on the organization of, of Occupy Wall Street. But, but what that shows is that it, over the course of a generation, we move from no understanding of, of, um, of how to organize ourselves in a horizontal way to it becoming today, that position is now kind of the default on the left. If you look at what uh, happened over the summer, mutual aid organizations, horizontalism, all of the basic practices that an anarchist uh, emphasized for a century and a half, that has become kind of a natural way of relating for those of us on the left who are organizing and trying to change what's going on in our society. So yeah, it takes time, uh, but we see evidence of that evolution right in front of us. We see evolution of uh, mutual aid societies, horizontalism and so forth uh, very clearly, and I think it will only grow in the future. I think you've made the argument that there have been two instances of anarchism being achieved in practice on the societal level. One, you've already mentioned kind of the Spanish Revolution within the Spanish Civil War. So we're talking about on the 1930s. The second is what happened in Ukraine from beginning in 1918. So this is just after the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. Nestor Makhno's name is associated with this, correct? Yeah, that's right. Nestor Machno was a military genius in many ways, and um, he inspired a uh, an anarchist revolution in the Ukraine that uh, was very short-lived. It wasn't nearly as developed as, um, for example, in in uh, in Spain. But they did manage uh, to redistribute property, begin to organize themselves on a horizontal basis. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and this is a problem in many of these instances, this was in the middle of war. And it was outside forces that destroyed uh, Machno. It was basically Trotsky. Um, the anarchists were too much of a threat to the Bolsheviks. Even though it was the anarchists that saved the Bolsheviks' bacon in many, many cases uh, early on in the revolution, the Bolsheviks betrayed the anarchists, went down, essentially slaughtered many. The Bolsheviks probably killed more anarchists than they killed capitalists. So that points up a weakness in anarchist theory that I don't think anybody has really managed to, to come up with, and that is the threat from outside military force. Uh, and that's one of the issues that we, that we have to address. But there, uh, there have been many ex other examples of what, as well. Today, uh, the Rehova revolution in, um, uh, in Syria. That was inspired by Murray Bookchin. Oshalan was uh, imprisoned in the Turkish prisons. He got a hold of Bookchin's work, uh, and uh, those ideas spread uh, among his followers. And we see a an example of that kind of organization. I, but again, it's in the midst of war, and it's threatened by outside forces, and it could very easily be destroyed by military interventions. Uh, even if you go back to the 1820s and 30s, um, in, in that period, before there was a mass movement, the anarchist examples were small utopian communities like the Times Store, the Cincinnati Times Store, and uh, Modern Times, and, and so forth. And very often, they're outside forces that are intolerant of the behavior of uh, the anarchists that come in and you know, mess things up. So that is a strategic 
problem that anarchists are going to have to grapple with because there will always be outside forces who um, will try to put us down. Direct action is one way in which anarchists try to, to fight back, to, to struggle. Um, how do you define it? And should direct action be associated specifically with anarchism or should it be associated more generally with kind of, uh, at least on the left, anti-capitalist action? Yeah, uh, direct action is a very important uh, concept. It is not uh, specifically anarchist, although I would argue that anarchists were very much involved in, in the development of the idea. And Voltairine de Clare, who's an uh, early 20th century American anarchist, uh, she wrote a pamphlet on direct action that you can pick up on uh, in Anarchy Archives, um, and it's very important. And one of the issues uh, about direct action is whether or not it means violent or nonviolent direct action. Detractors tend to see the violence involved, uh, but direct action does not have to be a violent confrontation. It can be a nonviolent confrontation. It can be a sit-in. It can be um, destroying draft card records, destroying tax records, which they did in, in Spain, uh, for example. So direct action means um, that you don't wait for somebody else to take responsibility for rectifying an injustice. It's our responsibility to confront injustice and to correct wrongs. Let's turn in the time remaining to something I know that's dear to your heart and to many anarchists' heart, which is cultural production. And, you know, you've referred to this over time, but how important has cultural production been to to anarchists internationally, really? Oh, this is this is one of the areas that I find most fascinating. I, what what many people are probably unaware of is that uh, all of the neo-impressionists were anarchists. The whole idea of pointillism uh, from Seurat, uh, that is an anarchist conceptualization. It's the idea that every individual dot is an individual, but the overall image only comes into view when you step back and you see all the individuals um, in, uh, coordinated together. So here, Dana, we're talking about the, the, the movement in painting, correct, associated with Seurat and Pissarro and the like? In painting, but not just in painting. It's also in, in literature. Uh, and, and it has an impact on Dada and, um, for example, Seurat's agent, uh, Felix uh, Fanon, was a writer. And he expanded the anarchist or applied the anarchist ideas and created a, a, a genre called uh, a novel in one sentence. Uh, so there were a variety of uh, cultural outlets, uh, literature, painting, sculpture uh, that were influenced by anarchists. And, well, uh, I guess it was Leon Bloom who, um, I may be wrong on this, but I think it was Leon Bloom who said, uh, we're all anarchists now. Uh, because the anarchists changed the conversation. They changed the way people thought about painting. And uh, from Impressionism, all the other uh, modern art movements developed out of that. They they broke the mold and created a new way of thinking. And that's uh, pretty much what anarchist cultural production can do. It can change the conversation. Uh, and anarchists uh, have been very conscious about how important art can be in moving the ideas forward. Tell us about the infamous picnics, the infamous anarchist picnics. Uh, that's another example of how important cultural activities were in uh for well this this occurred in uh, spain all over but i think one of the great examples um is out of chicago in the 1880s uh in the 1880s uh the anarchist movement was extremely strong in chicago and of course that's where you get uh the haymarket uh martyrs but the anarchists had organized entire uh, the entire life of workers was organized around uh, things like gymnastics. Uh, we would call it tumbling today, but this was a you know physical exercise became a deal. So every everybody got involved in this and they uh, joined gymnastic clubs. Uh, they had uh, hunting clubs, rifle clubs. Uh, they had choirs. Uh, they had um, theater companies. 
And people would get together and they would go out on Sundays and Saturdays or whatever. Uh, and they would get together and they would engage in all of these activities. And it was a form of community building. And it was a form of, of creative expression. It created a real deep sense of community among uh, the anarchists in Chicago. And um, the authorities recognized that this was a problem. And so they were on uh, a constant campaign uh, to uh, cancel the leases for the gymnasiums, uh, to cancel the leases of the, the taverns, because taverns, beer halls, and so forth were a very important gathering place where uh, anarchist ideas were spread. In fact, you can, there's a wonderful book called Beer and Revolution uh, that focuses on New York, and you can kind of see the spread of uh, anarchist ideas attached to where people came to drink. Probably the most famous story uh, is when Emma Goldman came to New York on her first day. She's a complete newcomer. She has one address of someone who, who was involved in the movement. She goes to a, um, a restaurant where immediately she encounters a dozen other anarchists, most importantly, Alexander Berkman, with whom she develops a lifelong relationship. You know, that shows how important these cultural, social uh, locations are. It's where people can get together, share ideas, meet other like-minded people, and all forms of cultural production do that. They create an audience, they create a crowd, and it creates the opportunity to promote anarchist values, ideas, and organizations. Dana Ward, Professor Emeritus of Political Studies at Pitzer College. We have a link on againstofagrain.org to Anarchy Archives, an online research center on the history and theory of anarchism that he founded and that he still maintains. You can also check out an article that he co-authored with Paul Messersmith-Glavin called Why Anarchism is Dangerous. Dana, thanks so much for your work and thanks for joining us today. Been my pleasure. And that program first aired on April 27th of this year. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>